Welcome, my name is Pastor Scotty Bockhaus, and we thank you for taking some time to listen to some audio recordings from the pulpit of the Riverview Baptist Church. Our desire is to show the Lord high, holy, and lifted up, as well as try to be a blessing to those through the Word of God. Please enjoy this message, and we pray that it will be a blessing to your life. And if you wouldn't mind to take your copy of the Word of God and turn with me to the Old Testament book of Haggai. The Old Testament book of Haggai and Haggai in chapter number 2. The book of Haggai in chapter number 2. As we had gone through the book of Haggai on Sunday, we had started off with the historical context of both Haggai and Zechariah, speaking about how the people had been returned back to the land under the order of Cyrus the Great, and how they were sent back for the purpose of rebuilding the house of the Lord. And that we had saw as they laid the foundation, the people cheered and the people cried, celebrating this. But because of opposition, because of hardship, because of persecution, because of different things that happened, because of fear, they stopped building the house of the Lord. And so they went stagnant for 15 years. And after 15 years of being stagnant, God sent two preachers, Haggai and Zechariah, to preach to the people, to stir them up, to have them to rise up and build, because now is the time to build the house of the Lord. And he explained in the book of Haggai how it was required that they stop making excuses and just serve, that they need to serve God with clean hands, and that God had been given so many promises to help them to rise up and build. And with that, we find our way back to the book of Haggai, chapter number 2. And we're going to set this as context, but then we're going to give a historical lesson dealing with three tabernacles, or sorry, three temples that are mentioned in the Bible historically. And this is going to be important for our understanding of world history for biblical events. So with this, notice with me in the book of Haggai chapter 2, as it deals specifically with one of these temples. Haggai chapter 2 and verse 1. In the seventh month and the one and twentieth day of the month came the word of the Lord by the prophet Haggai, saying, Speak now to Zerubbabel, the son of Shelithiel, governor of Judah and Joshua, the son of Jehoshadak, the high priest, and to the residue of the people, saying, Who is left among you that saw this house in her first glory? And how do you see it now? Is it not in your eyes in comparison as it is as nothing? Yet now be strong, O Zerubbabel, saith the Lord, and be strong, O Joshua, son of Jehoshadak, the high priest, and be strong, all ye people of the land, saith the Lord, and work, for I am with you, saith the Lord of hosts. According to the word that I covenant with you, when ye came out of Egypt, so my spirit remaineth among you, fear ye not. For thus saith the Lord of hosts, yet once... It is a little while, and I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land. And I will shake all nations, and the desire of all nations shall come. And I will fill this house with glory, saith the Lord of hosts. The silver is mine. 
and the gold is mine, saith the Lord of hosts. And the glory of this latter house shall be greater than that of the former, saith the Lord of hosts. In this place I will give peace, saith the Lord of hosts. And again with this we're going to diverge a little bit from here and speak about the three temples. The three temples. If you don't mind, let's go to the Lord together and let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you again for you being a wonderful God. And as we go through the Bible and explain the importance of these three temples, that we would understand that you are setting a pattern, setting a pattern of work, setting a pattern of example of worship, setting a pattern to follow. And we're asking that we would understand your scriptures, we would understand you, that we would be drawn close to you because of this. And again, thank you for being a wonderful God who is worthy to be worshipped. Again, fill me with your spirit. Set aside anything that's on my mind on my, that would keep me distracted from serving you, from being a vessel that's used by you even now. Lord, you know my heart. I never want to be a waste of these good folks' time. So I'm praying that your scripture would open up and give us a special understanding that would help us with your understanding, your scripture, and your plan, and your way. And we love you in Jesus' name. Amen. Inside of the Bible, it mentions three historical temples that are unique and separate from each other, and that are important for us to understand in God's plan and God's working. Now, each one of these temples are based off the pattern that God gave concerning the tabernacle. So the first thing I do want to do is give you a quick overview of the tabernacle so we can understand and build off of that each one of these three temples are based off this pattern of God's design. Remember that the tabernacle was written by God's plan. Someone said, that the tabernacle is the only perfect building because it was designed by God and built to God's pers um, um, perspectives, to his specifications. Inside of the tabernacle, you would first enter into the court. And the first thing you would come to the court is you would come to the brazen altar. And there at the brazen altar, what would happen is that you would offer your burnt sacrifice that you would offer to the Lord, whether it was through one of the feast days, whether it was in thanks, whether it was in celebration, but you would come to this brazen altar and there you would transfer, if it came to the time where you were uh, recognizing your sins and you would transfer your sins by touching the animal. Now, of course, it didn't really transfer, but it was trying to show the picture that because of your sins, something had to die for the wages of sin is death then what would happen is that the priest would take this offering and they would burn it. And again, to kill an animal and to burn it would be a very disturbing thing because it is disturbing that our sins are very, very awful in front of the sight of God and the price that is required for it. And so they would take it. The person would then walk away. Then the priest would continue their duties. When they would get done with this burnt offering, they would turn around and the next thing they would come to would be the brazen laver. Inside of the brazen laver would be a place where they could wash their hands. If the brazen altar was a picture of the cleansing of our sins, then this would be the cleansing after we're saved, to show that to our confession of our sin. 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive of us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That even though you may be forgiven of all of your sins, we still need to be spiritually clean before we go to the Lord. And we could do that by confessing or agreeing with God about our sins. 
Now the next thing you would come would be to the tabernacle proper. As you would step inside, there would be three pieces of furniture inside of the first room of the holies. You would have over here, you would have, excuse me, you would have the golden candlestick. And Jesus said, I am the light of the world. Over here on this other wall, you would have the table of showbread. And Jesus said, I am the bread of life. All of this is pointing to Jesus Christ. That Jesus Christ is the one who was the sacrifice who paid for our price. It is because of Jesus Christ we can be washed and cleansed from our sin. Jesus is the light of the world. That Jesus Christ is the bread of life. And then as you come to the back wall, or the back portion of this room, you would come to the altar of incense. And this would represent the prayers of the Lord Jesus Christ going to us. That Jesus Christ is our great intercessor and he prays for us. Now in between this room and the next, separating this would be a thick veil. This veil would be like a hand's breadth thick. It'd be a thick curtain that would go in between these. On the other side, you would have what was called the Holy of Holies. And it's because of Jesus Christ, we now can go through the veil to go into God. And inside of this other room was the place, the Ark of the Covenant. The Ark of the Covenant was the picture of God's presence dwelling with us, which was the whole purpose of the tabernacle, was the whole purpose of the temple, was to represent God dwelling with us. Aren't you glad that we have a God who's not afar off, who's not so distant, that he has no interactions with us? We have a God who wants to dwell with us. He wants to be with us. He wants to be among his people. And so thus we have the tabernacle. And it is this tabernacle that the rest of the temples are now patterned off of. We start off with the tabernacle. The next thing we come to is the first temple. The first temple, which is often called Solomon's temple. The first temple, which is called Solomon's temple. Now Solomon built this temple in fulfillment to God's promise to David. Now David had gathered the materials and he wanted so much to build a house for God. However, God says, no, I don't want you to build it. I'm going to put it off. Let your son do it. You're a man of war. You're a man who has been very much in the, in the battling part of it. I want Solomon to be part of the building part of it. And I want him who has been a man who has lived in peace to build this for me. So David said, whatever you want. And so he did everything he could to prepare for it. And so all Solomon had to do was build it because everything was prepared off. Now, everything of the tabernacle or the temple was based off of the tabernacle, the same dimensions, just bigger. And again, the purpose was, was for God to be represented, to dwell among his people. It was supposed to be a place of God's presence. So because of this, what Solomon did is he took this and made it bigger. And then what he did is he overlaid the temple with gold. And for the purpose that when people would go to Jerusalem, they would see the sun glinting off and it would represent God's glory and presence among his people. You starting to catch the theme of what God's getting across? That God wants to be among his people. And he had in those old days physical representations that God wanted to be with his people. Now, of course, Solomon's temple was destroyed in 586 BC by the Babylonians. It was leveled, it was raised, it was destroyed, it was gone. Which now brings us to where we were at in Haggai dealing with the second 
temple. The second temple. Now the second temple is often called either Zerubbabel's temple or Herod's temple. Both of them are still the same structure, the second temple. Uh, Herod didn't have a separate temple. It was actually Zerubbabel's temple that he worked with. In Ezra chapter 1, we could see, as we had discussed on Sunday morning, that Cyrus the Great had made a decree for the people to go back and build the house of God. And so even Cyrus gave money. And then he said, if you're a Hebrew person, and even if you're not going back, you should give. Because having this house of God is important. Having the representation. Even Cyrus said, your God told me to do this. That God wants to have this representation that he dwells with the people. And of course the people laid the foundation and they set it down. And the people cried and they cheered looking at this temple. Celebrating that God's presence was going to be among them. This picture, this representation. But unfortunately because of discouragement, because of neighbors, because of persecution, because of fear. The temple laid in waste. And so God sent the two preachers of Haggai and Zechariah to preach once again. To encourage them to rise up and build. And so as we had talked about what happened in Haggai, let's see the finished work of it. Turn with me to the book of Ezra. The book of Ezra, and we're going to turn to several passages now as we've I just recapped what I've already taught you in the last couple days. Now let's see some more. Turn with me, if you don't mind, to the book of Ezra chapter 5. Ezra chapter, rather, Ezra chapter 6. Chapter 5 verses 1 and 2 is talking about the preaching of Haggai and Zechariah in order to get the temple to start to be rebuilt again. Then we come to the book of Ezra chapter 6. Ezra chapter 6. And notice with me verses 14 and 15. Ezra chapter 6 verses 14 and 15. And the elders of the Jews builded. And they prospered through the prophesying of Haggai the prophet and Zechariah the son of Iddo. And they builded and finished it according to the commandment of God of Israel. According to the commandment of Cyrus and of Darius and Artaxerxes king of Persia. And this house was finished on the third day of the month of Adar, which is in the month, or which in the sixth year of the reign of Darius the king. And so they continued because of the preaching of God's word. The people took it serious and they all pitched in. They all worked and the work was finished. They now had this new tabernacle. Now we saw in the book of Haggai <laughs> chapter number um, excuse me, in chapter number two, that the people were originally kind of discouraged. How was this going to be match up to Solomon's temple? Solomon, it took $20 billion. We don't have that. And God says, I just want you to do what I told you to do and it will be fine. I plan on using this in ways that you couldn't even imagine that the glory of this latter house shall be greater. That the greatest days are still ahead. So what happens? Well turn with me to the book of Daniel chapter number 11 and let's follow through history. The book of Daniel chapter number 11 
is written about something that will occur in the future to the Hebrew people. It is now our history, but let's look and see what this is talking about. Now, this event is so important that Daniel records it a couple times. There are other places in the scripture that records this. This is an important event. So what happens is that through the preaching of of Haggai and Zechariah, and through the leadership of Zerubbabel and Joshua, the son of Jehoshadak, they see the temple built. And they begin to use it again. The sacrifices are brought back. The Hebrew people are now encouraged. They're now serving God. Because of Nehemiah, they built a wall around the city, and they now became a prosperous place. As time went on, the Persian Empire is still reigning. After that, in 333 and 332 BC, a man by the name of Alexander the Great rose up. And he, the leader of the Greek Empire, conquered the known world and destroyed the Persians. And now, here we find Jerusalem and the temple under Persian or under Greek rule. What happened is that when uh, Alexander died. He did not leave a clear will. So what they did is they divided it among his four generals and each of them got a corner. And one corner that of the world in what we would now call Syria was a group of people called the Seleucids. And the Seleucids had a lot of influence. Then their, their nemesis, who was another Greek general, was the Ptolemies. And in between the Ptolemies in Egypt and the Seleucids of Syria was a small little place called Jerusalem. And what would happen is that the Ptolemies and the Seleucids would play political football with the Hebrew people, transferring, taking it over, fighting over that area. It was like a big buffer zone and it was constantly being fought over by the Seleucids and by the Ptolemies. Well, as time went on, the Seleucids became a little bit stronger and thus brings us to the prophecy that we find here in the book of Daniel chapter 11. The book of Daniel chapter number 11 and notice with me in verse number uh, 29. Um, let's go 27, get a good running start. Daniel chapter 11 verse 27. <laughs> and both of these kings' hearts shall be to do mischief. And it's speaking about the Ptolemies and the Seleucids. And they shall speak lies at one table, but it shall not prosper. Yet the one end shall be at the time appointed. Then shall he return into his land with great riches, and his heart shall be against the holy covenant, meaning against the Hebrew people, and he shall do exploits and return to his own land. And at the time appointed, he shall return and come towards the south, meaning the Seleucids are going to come to the south, this king. But it shall not be as the former, as the latter. Meaning that here the Seleucids and the Ptolemies are fighting. Eventually they come up with a king, the Seleucids do, called Antiochus Epiphanes. He had considered himself the enlightened one. And so Antiochus Epiphanes, the leader of the Seleucid Empire, said, I'm going to go down and I'm going to show the Ptolemies who's boss once again. And so he begins to go down. But God says, something's going to happen that it's not going to work out. It's not going to be that he loses or that he wins. Something else happens altogether. Notice in verse 30. For the ships of Chittim shall come up against him. Therefore he shall be grieved and return. And have indignation against the Holy Covenant. Let me pause here. What happens is that he goes down. He's going to fight against the Ptolemies. 
the Romans show up. The first time the Romans show up on a world scene, they had been hiding uh, amongst themselves, but now they'd started building out. And the Romans came and said, listen, if you fight the Ptolemies, you're going to have issue with us. And so he says, well, I don't want to fight two of them. So he turned around. Well, as he turns around, he's like a little kid who's mad and upset and looking for a cat to kick, you know, stupid, whatever else. And the next cat that was nearby was Jerusalem. Where he had a problem with him, he had called his name Atticus Epiphanes, which meant the enlightened ones. And what the Hebrew people is they mispronounced his name, which I don't remember what it is, but basically it meant dumb person. And so he hated it. He wanted to be the enlightened person. But they kept calling me names and fine, I'll show them. And so he goes to Jerusalem because he's mad because the Romans got in the way. He's got to go take it out on somebody. Let's go kick Jerusalem. Notice with me again at verse number 30. For the ships of Chittim shall come up against him. Therefore he shall be grieved and return and have indignation against the Holy Covenant. So shall he do and even shall return and have intelligence with him. And forsake the holy covenant. And the arms shall stand on his part. And they shall pollute the sanctuary of strength. And shall take away the daily sacrifice. And they shall place the abomination that makes desolate. And such do the wickedly against the covenant. But he shall be corrupt by flatteries. But the people that do know their God shall be strong and do exploits. And they shall understand among the people shall instruct many. Yet they shall fall by the sword and by the flame, by captivity, by spoil many days. And now when they shall fall, they shall be hoping a little help. But many shall cleave to them with flatteries. And some of them of understanding shall fall and try them to purge and make them white even to the time of the end because it is yet for the time appointed. And the king shall do according to his will and he shall exalt himself and magnify himself above every god and shall speak marvelous things against the god of gods shall prosper till the indignation be accomplished for that shall be determined shall be done neither shall he regard the god of his fathers nor the desire of women nor regard any god for he shall magnify himself above all so what happens is Atticus Epiphanes comes back and he says you know what you Hebrew people no more sacrifice in your God. It's now against the law. And because you're part of my territory, guess what? I have rule over you. Obey me. No more sacrifices. Well, that didn't go over too well. Because they still needed to sacrifice to their God. So he says, you know what? You don't want to listen to me. You want to have issue. You don't want to obey. Fine. I will make a sacrifice. And so he took a pig, which if you understand from Hebrew culture, it was an unclean animal, something that the Hebrew people could not mess with and touch with. And he took this pig and he put it on the altar of God and he sacrificed it to the God Zeus. And this is an event that is called in verse number 31, the abomination that makes desolate. It says in several other times in the book of Daniel, and later on, it's mentioned in the gospel records and revelation as the abomination of desolation. The abomination of desolation. This is a big deal. Where he goes into the temple, he sacrifices a pig, an unclean animal, to a false god. 
And he defiles the whole thing. Now the people are upset. Here's the Hebrew people that have to worship inside of the temple. And now they can't because he's outlawed the sacrifices. And he's defiled it. And the people had enough. And so thus came what was called the Maccabean revolt. That the families of the Hebrew people revolted against him. And they kicked him out. And the armies of the Seleucids surrounded. The people had to hide inside of the the temple. And they only had enough oil to see by for one day. And yet they could not get relief for seven And God kept the oil burning, even though it only lasts for a while. And thus the holiday of Hanukkah was born, which was to celebrate this time where God continued to provide for them in the midst of their enemy surrounding. They eventually won their freedom and became their own independent state once again. In the midst of this, he fought against them and Atticus and Epiphanes tried to squish them, tried to extinguish them, and God fought for them. Now they're their own independent state. And they survived for a while as the Roman Empire began to spread around them. They were not part of the Roman Empire for a while until one of the Edomites, who is an old Edomite from the country of Edom, stepped in, called himself a Hebrew person, and made a deal to sell the country that he didn't own, to the Romans. Hey, you want this land? Here's some land for you. You go ahead and sell it. I'll sell it to you. We'll be part of the Roman Empire. You make me leader, and we're good. And that man, Idimeter, had a son by the name of Herod. And Herod rose to power, and Herod was one of the most cunning politicians there ever was. He was a mastermind. He was very, very evil, of course, but he was a mastermind. When there was a civil war after Julius Caesar died, there was a civil war within the Roman Empire between Octavius Caesar, Caesar's nephew, and Mark Antony. Now, Mark Antony had control of Egypt and the Africa-Asia part, whereas um, Octavius had all of the Europe, and they had a big fight. Well, Herod had backed Mark Antony. If you know history, Mark Antony lost. Remember Cleopatra died, Mark Antony died. It was a big, horrible thing. Well, Herod, who was a big public backer of Mark Antony, went to Rome, to the Senate, went to to Octavius, and just after a couple hours of spending with him, he walked out with even more power, and the Roman senator called, uh, Senate had named him the official king of the Jews. Now, you have to be a master politician to fight with the enemy and then go talk with someone to come out more powerful than what you came out. He was a master politician. So now he is the official king of the Jews. Well, the Jewish people are still not happy because their country had been sold to the Romans. Well, let me tell you what I'm going to do. I understand that you have some ill will. So why don't we reconstruct this temple? You guys love the temple, right? Well, why don't we put our finances into it and let's remodel the temple and let's make it full of splendor and glory. And for 46 years, they rebuilt Zerubbabel's temple. It's still Zerubbabel's temple, just with a remodel. But he did it to make the people happy. The Jewish people said, well, we know Herod is Herod, but you know what? He's rebuilding our temple and we love the temple. So we'll just let him do whatever he wants. And so they did. Of course, if you 
<coughs> don't remember about Herod. Herod was so hated that he knew that um, nobody would mourn for him when he died. In fact, Octavius said it would be better to be one of Herod's pigs than one of his sons because at least he won't touch the pig. He'll kill his sons. And he's killed so many of his sons already. He would keep getting suspicious that they were taken over so he'd kill his son and then this one would make him mad. He'd kill the son, write this one out of the will. It just was not good to be part of Herod's family. Because Herod knew that he was so hated and he knew that no one would mourn for him that he arranged so when he got sick towards his deathbed, he had the 70 most influential important people in the region arrested with orders that as soon as he died, all 70 of them would be put to death so that way the whole country would be in mourning when he died. One way or another. Again, he was a very awful guy, a very evil man. But of course, this temple here, it didn't last. And they, <clears throat> it would be destroyed by the Roman Emperor Titus or the Roman general who would be Roman Emperor in 70 AD. So here's this temple built by Zerubbabel under the leadership of Zerubbabel to represent God being among his people. They had some fights. They had things going against it. Finally, Herod came. After 46 years, they remodeled. But the thing about this temple is this was the temple where Jesus Christ walked in. This is where Jesus Christ spent time in. As a 12-year-old boy, he confounded and confused the doctors using scripture. He went and preached messages here. He was put on trial here. He made sacrifices here. There was a lot of that Jesus did with this temple. But then finally it was destroyed in 70 AD. Which now brings us to the next one. The false temple. The false temple. And if we were to associate it with a person. It would be the Antichrist. The Hebrew people have not had a temple since 70 AD. Almost 2,000 years ago. The Hebrew people, they cannot worship God the way that they want to, the way they ought to without the temple. Their worship is incomplete. So the hope of every Jewish people today is that the temple would be rebuilt. If you talk to any Orthodox, serious Jewish people, you talk to a Hebrew person from Israel, their hope, their prayer is that the temple would be rebuilt. This is the main thrust. The problem is, is that the Muslims are there now with the Dome of the Rock, and they're not giving up that land. Yet the Hebrew people hope. The Hebrew people pray. The Hebrew people prepare. In Jerusalem today, there are warehouses full of every material that they need to rebuild the temple. All you have to do is say, go. They already have all the material. They're just waiting for the go. They're just waiting to say, do it. They don't need to gather anything else up. It is prepared. This is how much they want to see their temple rebuilt. The problem is, is that they're going to get their wish, but it's not going to be according to God's plan. What's going to happen is the next event on God's calendar is something we would call the rapture. And during the rapture, God is going to call away all those people who believe 
Jesus Christ as their Savior. They're going to be called away. And the purpose of this is that God is no longer dealing with the Gentile world primarily. He is now going to begin to deal with the Hebrew people. And so the church is no longer needed. We're called away. God is now going to start events to work with the Hebrew people. Part of this event is right after the rapture, the Antichrist is going to come to power. When he comes to power, he's going to look like a great hero. After all, you think about millions of people disappeared. Look at how many houses are available. I'm going to solve the, solve the homeless pro problem. Everyone gets a house. You know what? All these cars are now abandoned. Everyone gets a car. Hey, all these millions of people have disappeared. We've come up with a way to track them. So if it ever happens again, we can find you. Just put this microchip in your hand and we can keep track of where you're at. And so he's going to come up with a great problems. Then we know according to Bible history, Bible prophecy, we're not going to get into it too much. God is going to destroy the Russians and the Muslims as they join together to fight against Jerusalem. Because America is gone. No America to back them up. Let's wipe them out. And God's going to fight for the Antichrist and destroy the Russians and the Muslims. Which is a whole different deal on its own. I'm trying not to get too digress. I'm trying to bring it. So with the Muslims gone... They don't need the Dome of the Rock no more. And so the Antichrist is going to finally bring peace to the Middle East by putting a peace agreement with the Hebrew people. He's going to say, you go ahead and rebuild your temple now. Let's bring it so that way you can finally have a place. And they're going to say, yes, sir. And three and a half years is all it's going to take for them to rebuild the temple. They're ready to go. They have all the materials. They just have to go. And they do. After three and a half years, the Antichrist, when the temple is rebuilt, in fact, let's turn to the book of 2 Thessalonians and let's look for ourselves. The book of 2 Thessalonians. Now, this is interesting how it all weaves together. Now, what is the main purpose of the tabernacle? Temple? To have God's presence represented among the people. That God desires to be among his people. Look with me if you don't mind. The book of 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. Notice with me in verse 1. Now we beseech you brethren. By the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. And by our gathering together unto him. That you be not so soon shaken in mind, or be troubled, neither by spirit, nor by word, nor by letter as from us, as the day of Christ is at hand. Let no man deceive you by any means, for that day, the day of Jesus Christ, shall not come, except there be a falling away first, and that the man of sin be revealed, this is the Antichrist, the son of perdition, who opposeth and exalted himself above all that is called God, or that is worship, so that he as God sitteth in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. What's going to happen is the Antichrist is going to come, and he's going to make this peace agreement with the Hebrew people. After this peace agreement, the Jewish people build the temple three, three and a half years. Then the Antichrist is going to come. And he is going to sit on the temple throne. And he's going to declare himself to be God. And that all the Hebrew people and all the nations of the world should worship him. The Bible calls this event the abomination of desolation. 
The reason why is because the same things that Atticus and Epiphanes did, the Antichrist is going to do. He's going to defile the temple and he is going to declare himself to be above God, that he is God. Everyone should acknowledge and worship me. And then the Hebrew people are going to realize that they were deceived. And now they're going to turn to Jesus Christ as their personal savior, realizing that the one who come, that was their Messiah, not this one. And so the unfortunate thing about all of this is remember the Hebrew people today are looking to rebuild their temple. They have all the materials made, but all the materials that they've sacrificed and protect and put is going to be used to build a false temple that will not stand and will not last. Could you imagine putting all your hope and investments? People have spent millions and millions of dollars to purchase this. And it's all going to be used for something that's going to go to waste and be destroyed. But God still has a plan. And thus we come to the third temple. The first temple was Solomon's. The second temple was Zerubbabel, then remodeled by Herod. The next one is going to be the the false temple by the Antichrist. But God is going to remake a temple during what we would call the Millennial Kingdom. Turn with me to the book of Ezekiel chapter 43. Ezekiel 43. And let's see as the Bible mentions this temple. Now we're bringing us to a conclusion. Stay with me. There's something we're going to. Remember the purpose of the tabernacle, the purpose of the temple is to represent God's presence among his people. We know that the Antichrist temple, that's not God's presence. The Antichrist is going to try to be among the people, but the people are realizing the deception. But during the millennial kingdom, God is going to remake a temple, and this is going to be a little bit different. Notice with me in the book of Ezekiel 43. Ezekiel 43, notice with me in verse 1. Afterward, he brought me to the gate, even to the gate that looketh towards the east. And behold, the glory of the God of Israel came by the way of the east, and his voice was like the noise of many waters, and the earth shined with his glory. And it was according to the appearance of the vision which I saw, even to the vision that I saw when I came to destroy the city, and the visions were like the vision that I saw by the river Chibar, and I fell upon my face." And the glory of the Lord came into the house by the way of the gate, whose prospect was towards the east. So the Spirit took me up and brought me to the inner court. And behold, the glory of the Lord filled the house. And I heard him speaking unto me out of the house. And the man stood by me. And he said, Son of man, the place of my throne and the place of the soles of my feet where I dwell in the midst of the children of Israel forever. And my holy name shall the house of Israel no more defile, neither they nor their kings by their whoredom, by the carcasses of the king in their high places. And it goes on. But notice again verse 7. This is God speaking. That's that he. He said to me, son of man, this is the place of my throne. This is where Jesus Christ is going to rule and reign the rest of the earth during the millennial kingdom. And the place of the soles of my feet, where Jesus' feet, and where I will dwell in the midst of the children of Israel forever. 
This is where God says, I'm going to dwell among you forever. This is going to be the place of my presence among you for the millennial kingdom forever. And no one's going to defile it. You're not going to have an Antiochus Epiphanes who's going to sacrifice a pig to a false god. You're not going to have some Antichrist come and sit on this throne. This is my throne and I'm going to dwell here forever. Because the purpose of the temple is to have God's presence dwelling among men. Dwelling among his people. Now, interesting enough that the rest of the book of Ezekiel is going to cover this temple. But this temple, there are some differences between this temple and the millennial kingdom than the first temple. Why? Well, this temple that's found in the book of Ezekiel does not have the Ark of the Covenant. It does not have the tables of law. It does not have Aaron's rod. It doesn't have the mercy seat. It doesn't have the high priest. It doesn't have a veil. It doesn't have the showbread. It doesn't have the lampstead. Why not? Because all of those picture Christ. And you don't need a picture of Christ if Christ is there. Jesus is there in the midst. He's going to rule and reign. This temple is going to be different. Now, what's the purpose of this millennial temple? Well, first of all, it demonstrates God's holiness. It's going to be a place where God's holiness was there and represented and people are going to understand that God is a holy God. Therefore, we should be holy as he is holy. That we should be holy to come to his presence. That we should not expect God to to defile himself to come to us. We also understand it is the dwelling place of God's presence among his people. That's the whole purpose of it. That during the millennial kingdom, we know where God's going to be at. And he's going to be dwelling with our people. No longer is it going to be far away. But he's going to be right there in the midst of us. What's another reason for the millennial temple? This is going to be the center of all the government of the world. Everyone's going to come and answer this. Jesus will be the high priest. Now, interesting enough, the sacrifices will be reinstituted. You say, why bring back the blood sacrifice? Are we bringing back religion? Well, remember... The sacrifices did not save in the first place. They're just a reminder that the shit, because of our sin, there's a, desire, there's a price to pay. Remember that there are going to be people in the millennial kingdom who are going to be born. And when they're born, they're going to be sinners. And this is a way that God is going to remind them because of their sin that there's a price to pay. Now remember, this is a place where there's going to be very little crime. There's going to be very little opportunity for people to grossly sin. So how are they going to know that their sin is awful? The sacrificing of blood. It's going to be a way to witness to them that their sin is awful. They're a memorial. They are not going to reinstitute the Mosaic law, but they do want people to realize that because of their sin, there is a price to pay. Well, you say, well, this is good and all. It's nice to learn about the temples, that the purpose of the temples to, to remind us about God's presence in us and that there was the tabernacle, then there was Solomon's temple. After that, there was Arubabel's temple. The Antichrist is going to try to do a fake temple, but it's not going to work in the millennial kingdom. What does that have to do with us? I mean, we're not living in the Old Testament age. We're not in the millennial kingdom. We don't have a temple. What's the purpose? Why do we need to know about this? Because we are the temple of the living God. Turn with me, if you don't mind, in the book of 1 Corinthians. Now remember, what is the purpose of the temple, the tabernacle? To represent God's presence among his people. We don't need a building. We are the building. 
that God himself through the Holy Spirit lives within me and lives within you if you've accepted Jesus as your Savior. Notice with me 1 Corinthians chapter 3. 1 Corinthians chapter 3. Again, we're trying to stress what is the purpose of the temple? What is the purpose of the tabernacle? For God's presence to dwell among men. So therefore, what is the purpose of us being the tabernacle temple? For God to dwell among us, to have his presence among us. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, notice with me in verse 16. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 16. Know ye not that ye are the temple of God, and that the Spirit of God dwelleth in you? If any man defile the temple of God, him shall God destroy. For the temple of God is holy, which temple ye are. Now think about this. God says, you're my temple, and it is wrong for you to defile my temple. Well, wasn't it wrong for Antiochus Epiphanes to sacrifice a pig to Zeus? Absolutely. Was it wrong for the Antichrist to sit and declare himself to be God? Yes. So much so that God called it the abomination of desolation. And that the purpose of the temple is to represent God's presence among us. And if God's presence among us, then there's a holiness. So if you are the temple of God, you are expected to keep this temple holy and clean before God. That means we can actually pollute the temple by things going in our eye gate. Things going through our ear gate. We could defile our temple. This is one of my personal reasons why you shouldn't have tattoos. Because this is God's temple. Unless you get his permission, you probably shouldn't do anything to mark it and defile it. That's neither here nor there. But I do believe that there's a principle that keep this temple, which represents God's presence, holy and right. Let's go on. 1 Corinthians chapter number 6. 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Let's see God as he emphasizes this again. We're talking about the presence of God dwelling amongst us. And that we are now the temple of God. That means this is his dwelling place. And there's an expectation of holiness in his dwelling place. Notice with me in the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Notice with me verse 15. Know ye not that your bodies are the members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them the members of a harlot? God forbid. Now again, this is God's vessel. Is it right to take God's vessel and defile it by committing fornication outside of God's design for marriage? That's not what you would do with God's vessel. Would God's dwelling place is defile it? Verse 16. What? No, notice that. That's an emphasis. What? Ye know not that he which is joined to a harlot is one body? For two, saith he, shall be one flesh. You know, you could defile the temple that God's dwelling in by the activities we do. Notice in verse 17. But he that is joined to the Lord is one spirit. Flee fornication. Every sin that a man doeth is without the body. But he that committeth fornication sinneth against his own body. Here's an emphasis on fornication here. On sexual sins. And by the way, there are a plethora of sexual sins within our country. And things that we're used to. And things that we now accept. And God is saying, you know what? There's a lot of sins. But here is one sin that actually defiles the body. It's equivalent 
Now think of, this is highly convicted. This is equivalent of taking a pig and sacrificing it to Zeus. This is what God is attaching it to. That if we defile our bodies with sexual sins. You understand that most people in our world have some type of sexual sins that they're dealing with? We're living in a time where pornography is rampant. And we're allowing those sexual sins to affect us. And you say, well, I'm not purposely going to a specific site. Yeah, but there's enough movies and shows out there that do the same equivalent thing. Even to the thing of how people dress. Where people, because of their minds, pornography actually changes the way a man thinks. And so what he does is he now looks at women and the first thing he thinks of is she sexually compatible with me. I'm giving you a clue. If you didn't know how that is, that's how God or how pornography reprograms. And so now when the first thing he looks is he looks at a lady and he looks to see if she's sexually desirable. This is why it's so important to dress modestly to try to stop that line of thinking. They actually tried to do a study years ago on how pornography changes people. The problem is, is they couldn't find enough people who hadn't watched pornography to do the study. That's the type of world that we live in today. Notice as it goes on, verse number nine. What? 19. What? Know ye not that your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost which is in you, and that ye have of God, and ye are not your own. Remember that Jesus redeemed us. He bought us. He currently owns our body. Now, Americans don't like this. They hate this. I can do whatever I want. Well, if God owns it, technically we're supposed to do what he wants with our body. We like to think that we could do whatever we want with our body. Things that we put into it, things that we put on it, things that we decorate it with. But it should be all lined up because it is his temple and he should be the one that tells us what to do with his temple. Now again, that covers a whole range of things. No wonder Paul is putting this emphasis. What? 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 You didn't know this? You didn't know that this is not your body? It is God's body that he's allowing you to use now. You have to get his permission to do. Imagine how many things would be cut out of our life if we asked God if we could do this to his body. Is it all right if I do this to your body? Is it all right if I do this to your body? That might change quite a bit about what we do as we try to live a way that is pleasing to his temple that he now owns and he dwells within us. Verse number 20. For ye are bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. What is the purpose of the tabernacle? To represent God's presence dwelling with us. As New Testament Christians... We are actually the temple that God dwells within us. And it is his temple. And there is an expectation that we are supposed to keep this temple holy and undefiled. By the way, if you've ever wondered why it's so important to study the tabernacle and the temple, you now know why. Because they give us the instructions 
of taking care of his house. They give us the instructions of holiness that we are supposed to operate. No wonder there are more passages dedicated in the Bible of the tabernacle and temple than any other subject. We must place the emphasis where God places the emphasis. And he has given a lot of emphasis and instruction of how to take care of his, his tabernacle. Why? It represents God's presence dwelling among the people. And so what does he want to do with this tabernacle? He wants to be a representation of God's presence to other people. God lives in that vessel and I can tell there's a holiness about it. God lives in that vessel. I could tell there's a holiness about her because God dwelleth in her. You understand there's an expectation. And again, most people don't like this type of preaching because that means there's an accountability. Because if it's his being a steward, one day we're going to give an account on what we did in his body and his temple. And was it done to glorify And to pronounce God's holiness. Or did it in fact defile that tabernacle, that temple. And ruin that picture of God's presence among us. You understand the things that we do in our body is important. Because it's the representation of God's presence dwelling with us. Thank you for listening to this audio message. This is Pastor Scotty Bockhaus, and I encourage you to take this information that you just received and make a specific decision to follow after the Lord. If you don't know Jesus Christ as your Savior, let me beg you to take the time to receive Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. If you are saved, I encourage you to make a decision in your life to help you get closer with the Lord. If there's anything specific we can do to be a blessing or to pray for you, we encourage you. Look us up on the internet at riverviewbc.com. Once again, that's riverviewbc.com. Or if you would prefer to call us, you can give us a call at area code 920 Five three zero six three zero eight. Once again, that number is nine two zero five three zero six three zero eight. If there's anything we can do to be a blessing or an encouragement to you, please let us know. We would love to make ourselves available. Thank you.